whom Montanay should need no introduction in San Francisco. He's uh, well established, uh, comes from uh, a region where there in fact is healthcare system um, and has been able to use that fact to really um, lead many of us in uh, thoughts about uh, HIV uh, treatment, but also prevention. He's a professor of medicine, University of British Columbia. So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Montanetti, who's gonna talk about treatment as prevention, the key to an AIDS-free uh, generation. Uh, thank you, Stephen, and uh, thank you, the ISUSA, for uh, uh, having me here. It's a pleasure to uh, be with you uh, once again. Um, as indicated, uh, I'm going to share with you the Vancouver experience, and I do realize that uh, work similar to what we're doing uh, is going on in San Francisco and other places, but for reasons of time, uh, I'm going to uh, limit my remarks predominantly to the, sorry, to the work that uh, we've been doing uh, in British Columbia. Uh, let me start by uh, sharing with you my disclosure, uh, which was already highlighted as part of the introduction. Uh, that's to prove that we take money from anybody that uh, is willing to give it to us. We don't discriminate in Canada. Um, that's uh, with regards to the learning objectives. Uh, uh, most of the remarks are going to be focused on the issue of treatment and prevention uh, at the population level. Uh, and as you heard in the introduction also, uh, I'm going to be uh, capitalizing on the fact that we have a socialized medical system uh, whereby uh, in British Columbia, uh, access to care is uh, free of charge, and when it comes to antiretroviral therapy, there are no copayments, no deductibles, neither for the treatment nor for the laboratory or medical services related to it. Uh, so that puts us in a very unique position to describe uh, what uh, uh, antiretroviral therapy can deliver in a rather uh, ideal environment. Uh, before we go there, uh, I uh, have a couple of questions. Uh, the first one uh, is as shown, immediate heart use in serodiscordant couples has been associated with individual unprevented benefit. Uh, answer number one is true, number two is false. I trust if you pay attention to the title of my talk, uh, you may have a hint of what the right, the right answer should be here. Good, uh, most people were paying attention. Um, and then uh, uh, the second question is, heart is uh, highly unlikely to prevent HIV transmission among injection drug users. The uh, first uh, answer is uh, true. The second one is false. You can choose now. This has been a subject of a fair bit of the controversy out there as to whether or not uh, what we have seen in other settings can be replicated in uh, IVUs. And 84% uh, of you feel that the proposition is false, and uh, we will uh, share some of the data regarding that uh, with you. So let me uh, reset the clock and go back to 1996, when uh, we had the privilege to host the internationalized conference in uh, Vancouver. Uh, that was the uh, uh, rather iconic uh, uh, drawing or picture that uh, one of my patients, Joe Average, uh, came up with uh, that uh, served as the sort of uh, the logo for the conference or the uh, image for the conference. Uh, at the time, uh, we were hoping that there was one world, one hope. Uh, uh, little did we realize that uh, this was going to materialize at the Vancouver conference, uh, where uh, triple therapy became the standard of care, largely uh, uh, as uh, recommended by the IAS guidelines that came out in JAMA uh, the same summer. And uh, as you can see in British Columbia, with the adoption of uh, triple therapy, 
uh, both PI and NNRPI base, uh, we saw a rather marked uh, decrease in death rate and a steady increase in life expectancy, uh, which uh, continues to improve uh, as of today. What we were not really uh, counting on at the time, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, was what is shown in this slide, uh, whereby uh, suddenly, uh, between 1986 and 1989, uh, we saw a decrease in the number of HIV new diagnoses uh, that were uh, made in the province uh, at a time in which syphilis rates were actually going up. Uh, I'll show you in a later slide the number of people on treatment so you get an idea of the dynamics of the rollout of antiretroviral therapy, but just take my word for it. Uh, we increased the number of people very quickly until 1989, and we reached a plateau uh, after 1999 and into 2003. And so, uh, quite remarkably, uh, this was uh, reciprocal to the number of people in treatment, and yet, despite the fact that syphilis was going up, um, uh, we were not seeing the increase that you would have expected uh, with regards to HIV cases. Now, of course, there could have been other reasons why um, that was happening, but uh, uh, the fact is that the syphilis epidemic was concentrated in the same uh, circles where HIV was uh, uh, navigating in those days in British Columbia. Uh, so we felt that the data was very suggestive that there was a preventive benefit, secondary preventive benefit, with regards to HIV transmission related to the rollout of treatment. The, the second piece of the puzzle uh, became rather obvious uh, when we looked at the mother-to-child transmission. Uh, these are infected women uh, who are pregnant in the light blue, and in the dark blue are the children born with HIV in 1990 to 1996. And as it was the case in North America, uh, for the most part, uh, the rate of uh, transmission of HIV during pregnancy was in the order of 50% to begin with, uh, declining with better obstetric practices uh, to about 30% in the uh, uh, 1994 to 96 years. Uh, but then suddenly, after 1996, you see a significant decline in the number of uh, children being born with HIV from mothers infected with HIV, uh, exclusively as a result of the introduction of uh, effective antiretroviral therapy during pregnancy. Um, in the last uh, seven years, uh, in the province of British Columbia as a whole, uh, we have had two children born with HIV, uh, and in both instances, uh, this was as a result of the mother not being identified prior to um, uh, the uh, birth of the kid, uh, largely because they were not engaged in care, uh, socio-cultural uh, issues being the, la the, the, the driver of that uh, uh, problem. So, um, by the mid-90s, it became clear that uh, a highly active antiretroviral therapy stops HIV replication, and although Danny Duick um, uh, provided some uh, evidence that there may be some residual uh, replication in some settings, uh, to what extent that is uh, meaningful in the context of this hypothesis uh, it, it is something that uh, could be debated. Uh, when the, uh, treatment becomes active, which, by the way, happens very quickly, immediately upon starting the regimen, uh, the viral load falls to undetectable levels in plasma, and that's very good for immune reconstitution uh, and related uh, clinical uh, endpoints. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the uh, viral load becomes undetectable in other uh, body fluids, including sexual fluids. And as a result of that, uh, since we always knew that more virus in a given uh, fluid was associated with a greater efficiency of transmission, it was relatively easy to accept that less virus uh, should be associated with uh, a decrease in the uh, likelihood of transmission. 
And, uh, and so that basically uh, completes the hypothesis that uh, treatment should lead to a decrease in HIV transmission. Um, as I indicated in my preliminary slide, uh, or my question slide, uh, there has been a question out there as to whether or not this would be uh, operational in the setting of injection drug use, uh, predominantly because um, uh, injectors uh, may share needles quite frequently in the order of many times a day. Uh, the dead space in the syringe and needle can be fairly large. Therefore, even if there is very little virus or cell-associated virus, uh, they, they can be very efficient at transmitting the infection. And so there was a lot of concern as to whether or not this would be um, a, an effective uh, means of decreasing HIV transmission. And without going into all of the details, uh, I'll show you this sort of the, the, the punchline slide uh, of a study that we did uh, in the downtown east side of Vancouver. This is a highly concentrated area uh, where there is a very, very huge number of uh, uh, IDUs uh, that uh, live. It's, a, it's the poorest uh, district in all of Canada. Uh, it's, um, it's highly marginalized. Uh, there is uh, street use of drugs, quite rampant, et cetera. And uh, we've been evaluating this uh, uh, area quite intensely for a number of years. So we had uh, prospectively collected samples on the residents of the downtown east side uh, for about a decade. And so uh, we were able to use samples derived from the HIV-infected individuals in that community as a sentinel uh, exercise to see what was the amount of virus circulating in the community. Uh, which is shown here on the blue line. And as you can see, after 1996, with the introduction of antiretroviral therapy, the median viral load in that community uh, went down quite significantly uh, to undetectable levels. And as you can see then in the red, uh, what we did is we related that to the um, uh, monitoring of HIV incidence in the cohabitating IDUs uh, in the same uh, uh, district. And what you can see here is that there is a very tight association. Uh, um, HIV is thought to have entered this community in 94, 90, 96, 94 to 96 period. Uh, that's where the studies were started. And uh, you see then that a high viral load in the community precedes a high uh, level of infection. Uh, this is true zero incidence uh, or HIV incidence, if you want. And, uh, and declining viral load was associated with the declining uh, incidence of HIV. <clears throat> the results, by the way, uh, were quite striking in that uh, when we looked at the uh, risk factors for acquisition of HIV, uh, while uh, needle sharing was associated with an increased uh, risk of uh, value of two, so it would increase your likelihood of transmission of HIV or acquisition of HIV by, by twofold, uh, the viral load in an untreated community right here with a viral load of uh, six logs would have been associated with a risk of 20-fold, indicating that the virus in the community is really the, 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 the true driver of HIV acquisition. Uh, we had the opportunity to share these uh, results with the Baltimore cohort, a live cohort, and, uh, and they have since uh, conducted the same type of analysis, and they have found uh, exactly the same results. Um, uh, one number that is quite striking to me uh, relates to the um, decrease in HIV transmission by uh, the decrease in uh, viral load in the community, in their uh, mathematical model derived from the alive cohort, they found that for every log or 90% decrease in viral load, you have a 74% decrease 
in HIV transmission, which is quite remarkable. Uh, this is shown in this slide here. So HIV incidence decreased by 74% for each log decline in the community viral load. Uh, this material was presented at CROI in 2011, and I believe that is still to be published. So we feel very confident, based on these two uh, separate studies, uh, that treatment as prevention is uh, highly relevant uh, to the IDU community as well. In due course, as you know, uh, the results of the HPTN uh, 052 study uh, came to really uh, definitively address this issue and to demonstrate that uh, the use of antiretroviral therapy in serodiscordant, predominantly heterosexual couples, led to a 96.3 reduction in transmission, and that this was the case whether the index member of the couple was a male or a female. I won't dwell on these uh, results further, but I want to highlight a couple of things. The first one is that the study showed an individual level benefit in terms of morbidity uh, and mortality as a combined endpoint uh, uh, for the use of immediate therapy. I think that's important because it addresses the issue of uh, uh, early treatment. Uh, does it uh, become relevant to the individual or, or is it simply a public health measure? And we do believe that uh, this is relevant for the individual first and foremost. Uh, the second thing is that the immediate arm had only one seroconversion, and that seroconversion occurred very early uh, after the initiation of treatment, uh, which really leaves us with a sense that uh, in the setting where people have been suppressed effectively, uh, the likelihood of transmission is as close to zero as you're going to um, expect. So with, with that as a background, I wanted to share with you uh, the um, health outcomes that we have documented associated with expansion of antiretroviral therapy in British Columbia. And it uh, is rather fortuitous uh, that the expansion has taken a three-phase kind of uh, dynamics. Uh, the first one started in 1996 <clears throat> after the uh, phase three clinical trials that uh, demonstrated uh, the efficacy of uh, triple therapy were completed. Uh, uh, so you see this is the phase I was referring to earlier, uh, followed by a, a steady state phase between the year 2000 to the uh, end of 2003. And then around 2003, uh, with a change in guidelines and with our um, uh, uh, now conviction that treatment was contributing to more than just uh, improving individual health outcomes, we um, started a campaign to try to uh, accelerate access to antiretroviral therapy. Uh, and so those three phases uh, led to the um, slides that I'm going to show you next. The first one, uh, just to give you a sense of uh, the timing of initiation of antiretroviral therapy uh, measured by cd 4 at baseline, um, you see that as of uh, 2004 to 2011, the CD4 count at baseline uh, has been increasingly st increasing steadily. Uh, uh, earlier on, it was uh, quite low, uh, just below 200. Uh, currently, it's approaching 400 as of 2011. That's the last data that I have. Uh, here we show the different um, uh, uh, strata of uh, CD4, and what we have been able to, to see is that individuals starting late uh, with uh, CD4 counts less than 200 are becoming increasingly uh, rare. Uh, however, this is a very difficult job. Uh, it's e much easier said than done. And when we try to implement this at a population level, as you can see, no matter how enthusiastic we can be, uh, it, uh, it takes a lot of uh, very um, persistent uh, uh, outreach effort uh, to diagnose and engage people into care, even in an environment where 
uh, socioeconomics are not a, a major uh, distraction. As far as uh, AIDS uh, diagnosis is concerned, uh, as you see here, uh, it's, um, it's pretty reassuring to see that uh, uh, we, uh, we virtually have control uh, AIDS incidence uh, in British Columbia. And with that, uh, we see that uh, mortality, this is all cause mortality, despite the fact that people are living longer, uh, they are still enjoying uh, a prolonged life. Of course, uh, the, as the cohort ages, uh, this is going to uh, change, but at the end of the day, I guess we're all mortal. Um, and so, uh, from an individual perspective, uh, these are very good outcomes. Contrary to what uh, it has been suggested in some of the mathematical modeling that has been uh, published, uh, expansion of antiretroviral therapy uh, does not necessarily mean uh, that the program will be weakened. Uh, so, uh, certainly that's a concern, but uh, as you can see here, the levels of viral suppression, whether measured on the orange at less than 50 copies or on the blue at less than 500 copies, uh, have been actually increasing. To a large extent, uh, that's a function of the fact that the program uh, uh, takes into uh, account the need for increased support as we engage people who may be on more uh, sort of um, challenging environments. Uh, but also, on the other hand, uh, we've been very fortunate that the treatments are becoming uh, more co uh, uh, compact, simpler, safer, better tolerated, and, uh, and uh, more potent. And so, uh, altogether, uh, this is a very good news slide. Uh, I did not include the resistance data, uh, but uh, I can reassure you that uh, the level of resistance consistent with the increasing level of suppression uh, have actually gone down over the same period of time, both for multiple drug re resistance and for single uh, drug resistance, uh, as we have uh, published some time ago. Uh, in the next slide, I'm uh, showing you what is uh, the sort of the most comprehensive view that we can come up with uh, regarding uh, viral load in the community at large, recognizing that uh, there is a, a percentage of individuals that are HIV infected and undiagnosed. Uh, arbitrarily, the, the Public Health Agency of Canada estimates that it must be in the order of 20% across the country. Uh, we don't have good regional data to uh, be certain of what that number should be. Uh, so, uh, you, can, you can make this uh, number uh, uh, go down by 20% if you want uh, to account for those individuals for whom we have no data. Uh, but uh, what I wanted to point out here is that this is viral load for everybody in the province, uh, regardless of, of, of whether or not they have been on antiretroviral therapy ever. Uh, we have a single uh, viral load laboratory in the province, so all of the viral loads that are done they're uh, free, but they are also come to a single laboratory. Uh, so I can tell you with confidence that this is 100% capture of all of the viral loads that have been done in the, in the province. Here you have the total number of viral loads done. Uh, in 2009, for example, that was 20, 26,000 uh, viral loads. Uh, and, uh, and that's derived from 6,500 uh, individuals, uh, 5,400 of those on antiretroviral therapy. And, and what the slide shows is the, the evolution of undetectable viral loads from being extremely rare in 1996 to being uh, approximately 50% among those individuals who are in, engaging care. And, uh, and what you see here on the other side of the spectrum is the proportion of individuals with high viral load. Uh, it, it could be 60, uh, uh, sorry, 55, no, 45% of those for which we have data. Uh, you can add 20% of those if you want to those 
if you want to consider the whole uh, prevalent population. Uh, and you see how that shrinks over time, uh, so that at the end of the day, uh, what we're seeing is a community impact uh, on viral load, which we would hope uh, trans translate into a decrease in HIV new infections. And that's shown in this slide. Uh, I, I uh, have included here the number of people on antiretroviral therapy, uh, to, so that uh, I refresh your memory regarding that. Uh, these are the number of uh, new infections uh, made year after year. And as you can see, uh, there is really a reciprocal behavior of these two curves. More people on treatment, less people being diagnosed. Uh, steady state leads to a steady state. Slower rise in the number of people on treatment, uh, slower decline. And again, this is uh, all statistically significant. I added here the IDU uh, curve uh, to show how this uh, uh, behaves in a similar fashion. We have data for 2012 that was recently released, uh, and I added the specific numbers uh, for the last three years, uh, 301 cases, 289 cases, uh, down now to 248 in 2012. Uh, that, prior to 1996, uh, was approximately 850 to 950 cases per year. So that gives you a sense of the impact that uh, we're seeing in regards to decreasing HIV new diagnosis. And this is at a time where um, uh, background uh, rates of hepatitis C, syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia have not really evolved favorably uh, in the province of British Columbia, uh, suggesting that, yes, there is a lot more that we could be doing to ameliorate these problems. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we have had a significant impact on uh, the HIV epidemic, despite the fact that uh, sexually transmitted infections and uh, bloodborne infections continue to increase. So. From our perspective, the way forward is fairly straight uh, and, uh, and clear. Uh, we, we need to enhance HIV testing, uh, first and foremost, uh, because we want to get rid of that uh, segment of individuals who are HIV positive and known. And in order to do that, we need to normalize HIV testing. Uh, the data is quite clear. Uh, the 20% or so uh, of the individuals that are unaware of their infection uh, disproportionately account for new infections and therefore, we need to do whatever possible to shrink that uh, number as much as possible. And since we have multiple options uh, for um, point-of-care testing, uh, there is really no excuse for us not to uh, aggressively uh, move those strategies forward. Um, this is one example uh, of uh, the kind of results that you get. Uh, remarkably, the results are, 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 have been reproduced now in various settings middle-income countries, in rural environments, really everywhere that this has been looked at, uh, the, the sense is the same. Uh, what we've done here is we took three different hospitals with very, very distinct demographics, uh, uh, and we offered uh, HIV screening uh, to individuals who were accessing services uh, in either the emergency rooms or the internal medicine wards, um, uh, regardless of the condition. Uh, uh, this was exclusively for individuals who were not previously diagnosed and they have no known risk or indication for HIV testing uh, if you approach them uh, on a targeted testing environment. Uh, two things were important for us. The first one is were, were our clients going to be willing to undergo HIV screening? And the answer uh, is overwhelmingly yes, 94% acceptance uh, uh, of the uh, HIV screening test. Uh, in a, again, in a population that has no uh, um, clear uh, uh, risk factor or recognized risk factors. 
And then the, the second one uh, is what is the positivity rate that we're going to find. And although this varies from uh, center to center, uh, overall, uh, we found uh, five per thousand uh, uh, HIV positives in an unsuspected population. Um, the CDC in Atlanta uh, uh, suggests that uh, as long as you get one per thousand uh, uh, positives, uh, the strategy is actually highly cost-effective. Uh, what this suggests is that we're operating at a level uh, where uh, the strategy is basically paced by itself. And so since then, uh, we have uh, implemented this province-wide, <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> and we're hoping to see uh, a further decrease in the number of uh, HIV undiagnosed as a result of it. The next thing is that we need to actually uh, operationalize our guidelines. Uh, the IAS USA uh, was the first um, to recommend uh, much more liberal early treatment uh, guidelines, including uh, recommending serodiscordant couples treatment uh, even before the HPTN052 results were available, which I think was quite insightful and, uh, and really the right thing to do. Uh, the DHHS, as you know, has moved in the same direction. And, uh, and more recently, WHO has embraced treatment as prevention as part of their guidelines uh, for the year 2012. And uh, I, I think that uh, this is the, the, the worst kept secret. Uh, next summer, uh, the WHO is going to be releasing new guidelines that will expand the eligibility criteria. Uh, this is a slide from uh, Gottfried Hirschner from WHO, where he already uh, forecasted, if you want, that the new guidelines are going to embrace a CD4 count of 500. Uh, really, the guidelines are there, uh, both uh, in North America and uh, now, uh, soon uh, to become available in the rest of the world based on the WHO guidelines, for us to do the right thing. The question is, are we going to do it or not? And, and before I go there, uh, I want to make the point that it is not simply about testing and, and having treatment available, but uh, we need to recognize that for this to be successful, we need to strengthen the cascade of care. And that means not just uh, talking about it, but actually having a supportive environment where individuals can access treatment efficiently uh, so that they can derive the outcomes that they need to uh, derive. Uh, this is an earlier slide by Garner in CID uh, showing the cascade of care in the United States, suggesting that less than 20% of the individuals who were living with HIV were actually suppressed at that time. Uh, this has been now revised to about uh, 20 some percent or close to 30 percent. And, uh, and uh, uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's 20 or 30 percent. Well, these rates, we're not really going to derive the, the health outcomes that we want to derive. We have um, uh, looked at the cascade of care uh, longitudinally here, uh, and basically to illustrate how we can use these to inform uh, our activities. And so by using the cascade of care approach, uh, we can identify where the gaps are and then come up with uh, various strategies that may allow us to uh, move uh, uh, our services closer to the community uh, to support more fruitful engagement on antiretroviral therapy. Uh, our current levels of suppression are in the 40 to 50%, depending what definition you use uh, for sustained suppression. Um, and at the end of the day, what, what we need is a programmatic focus. If, if HIV care is going to be uh, distributed throughout the system uh, without a clear and aggressive focus to pursue these kind of excellence and these kind of outcomes, uh, we're going to dilute the effort uh, and, uh, and we're just going to miss the opportunity. 
Uh, look at what's happening in Canada. Uh, BC is the only province that has truly free services for people infected with HIV, and the only province that has a dedicated HIV program. Everywhere else, the HIV program is basically diluted within the system. And we strongly believe that that's the reason why we see the outcomes that we see in BC. Uh, we just don't see uh, a declining HIV new infections anywhere else in the, pro in the country. And in fact, Saskatchewan and Manitoba are seeing increases in the number of people infected with HIV. So um, it's not just having the tools available, but really uh, working hard at uh, bringing them to the people in need who many times cannot access these services uh, effectively themselves. And to close, I wanted to uh, uh, share with you the money uh, side of the equation uh, by uh, uh, sharing with you the work that uh, uh, Granich et al. have done. Um, uh, Ruben Granich is currently in the, in the UNAIDS, uh, basically illustrating that if you look at the expansion of treatment from a CD4 count of 200 on the blue, the baseline here, to 350 to 500, or to test and treat here, uh, where you offer people treatment regardless of the CD4, uh, you can actually save uh, millions of lives in the South African context. Uh, but the important thing is that this, while it comes uh, at a cost, and at the upfront cost, uh, really over time uh, it becomes a money-saving proposition. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, 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 there is no reason for us not to be doing this. And, uh, and when it comes to programmatic efforts, uh, I want to remind you that treatment as prevention uh, uh, derives the greatest benefit on prevention of HIV transmission at a time in which really the investment is for treatment of people infected with HIV who need treatment, are easy to identify, and are highly motivated to do so, in contrast to what happened with uh, other uh, interventions, most uh, critically uh, PrEP, uh, which uh, has get, gotten a lot of attention, but from a programmatic perspective, uh, I don't think is the solution to our problems. Let me close there. Uh, uh, I think we have an opportunity to um, uh, truly uh, maximize the uh, health outcomes associated or optimize the health outcomes associated with uh, antiretroviral therapy. The question is, do we have the willpower and the focus and the commitment to actually uh, do it? Uh, because if we don't, we're going to miss a, a rather unique opportunity. Thank you. Time for a few questions. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, and say that. Um, oh, we have to do the questions first. Okay. All right. Sorry. It's hard to think that you're going to get any better, but uh, why don't you just go for it? Good. I guess that there is a 2.6% that we haven't uh, able to uh, convince. Um, you're fired. But, uh, but I, I guess uh, the, the data is pretty compelling that uh, uh, treatment of prevention refers, uh, first and foremost, preventing disease progression uh, to AIDS and death, and secondarily, deriving a, a benefit on HIV transmission. And the next. So heart is highly unlikely to prevent HIV transmission among injection drug users.
And uh, I guess there are 4.5% that are, remain unconvinced that this is the case. Uh, but I, I, I side with the majority. Uh, uh, I think the data uh, is derived now from two separate cohorts uh, showing fairly compelling evidence. Uh, I don't see, see the opportunity for us to do an HPT NOFI2 study uh, in uh, IDUs because of the logistics of uh, doing so. So from my perspective, the jury's out and uh, treatment is highly effective uh, in that setting as well. So the first question has to do with some of the barriers to HIV testing. Uh, we noticed yeah. in your um, study looking at the three different medical centers in acute care that it looked like still less than 50% despite during that period of time were actually offered HIV testing. Um, and so what are the barriers for all of us to sort of help um, move this forward? Uh, you're, you're right. Uh, I did not dwell on the, on the issue that uh, the offer rate was uh, in the 40% range. Uh, and that basically comes down to the same uh, issue all over again. Uh, you need to be focused, you need to be dedicated, and you need to have the, the personnel that are going to be committed to doing this at a time where we all have uh, competing priorities. Uh, so we find that uh, when we identify personnel that are going to be just pursuing the HIV testing as their mandate, uh, things get done. When you actually throw it into the system, make it available and encourage people to do it, the rates of acceptance are actually much lower. The next question has to do again with the risks of transmission from a, uh, in a serial uh, discordant couple um, and uh, what the absolute risk is. Um, is it in that situation treatment of the infected partner, does that protect completely against you know, transmission during intercourse and therefore for couples who want to conceive? Um, and what will be the impact of pre-exposure prophylaxis in this setting, which I know is not licensed yet in, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Canada? Uh, so, um, you know, this is a very tricky question. Uh, people often ask, well, is, is, is there no risk for HIV infection if, uh, if I've been suppressed uh, for, say, six months or a year? Uh, can I stop using condoms and can go ahead and have a child? And, and the truth is, um, uh, you know, it's impossible for us to demonstrate the absence of risk. Uh, and uh, there are so many variables that can uh, upset that equation that uh, we have to be very careful how we position that when we counsel patients. Now, when everything is said and done, uh, you describe the results that we have available and so on and so forth. Uh, you give rep uh, reproductive uh, choices uh, 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 available uh, to people. Uh, the, you discuss the cost of those choices, etc. Uh, my patients overwhelmingly have voted with their feet or, uh, or something else. And, uh, and they basically uh, go ahead and, uh, and they have children without uh, taking any other precautions. And uh, so far, so good. Um, I'm uh, reluctant to make that a formal recommendation. I think we have to be careful. There are medical legal implications and therefore, uh, uh, as you point out, uh, the, there is a consideration to be made about, well, in that instance, could we use pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, to even mitigate that risk even further? It makes sense. Uh, we don't have clinical trial data to support it, but, uh, but if, uh, if a common uh, sense uh, it would be my uh, compass, I think that uh, I would go for it. You alluded to the differences in the various provinces within Canada in terms of uh, healthcare delivery and the sign of HIV. So what are the institutions or programs in British Columbia that actually uh, have contributed to your success? Uh, I think it's, uh, at the end of the day, it boils down to having a 
programmatic approach to HIV. So uh, the way I describe this is fairly simple. Um, in, uh, say, uh, Ontario, uh, HIV is the domain of uh, groups that are, um, uh, they have multiple competing priorities. In other words, they are there to control HIV, syphilis, gonorrhea, hepatitis, uh, multiple infectious diseases, etc. And so uh, the, the tendency is we, you know, you become overwhelmed by the multiple things that you had to do and therefore you do whatever comes to you. Uh, 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 in British Columbia, uh, because it's a smaller province and we had a, a very high rate of HIV to begin with, as you saw in the slide, uh, the decision was made to centralize all of that and create an agency that has only one focus, that is HIV. And so if you don't come to us, we'll go to you. And we have a, a, a sort of an obsession to, to just do that because it's the only thing we do. And, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, it pays a huge dividend. I worry now that we're talking about expanding our mandate to uh, viral hepatitis B and C, uh, that if we don't keep that kind of focus in each one of them, uh, we actually may be uh, undermining the whole effort. Thank you very much. I want to thank Dr. Montanez for the talk, very productive. It's an incredible segue.